If you have your Bibles, please open them to Genesis chapter 35. We are continuing our study through the book of Genesis. And the Bible is not like any other book, uh, does not have 12 steps of how to have your best life now or to solve all of your marriage or parenting or work issues. Uh, what we find in here first and foremost is that the Bible is a revelation of God and of his perfections and of his ways. So as we come to the word of God, that ought, that ought to shape our expectation. And so often it is easy for us to come wanting all sorts of things. Inspiration to be made felt good, to be helped and guided in some way. And we do long rightfully for all of those things. But first and foremost, at the pinnacle of it all, we are to be looking to the Lord. This is the revelation of himself. And he reveals himself through a number of different ways. This morning we are looking at a history, an account of history, and it is a a summary. Just as before we have seen uh, chapters which kind of summarized Isaac's life, we have a summary chapter of, of Jacob's life for over a significant period of time. But it is a history, a narrative, an accounting of what God has done. There are passages in Scripture that are law. This is how you ought to live. This is what you ought to do. There is wisdom literature. There is poetry. There is prophecy. Both forthtelling and foretelling. There is an innumerable number of ways that we can approach, not approach the Lord, but a number, innumerable number of ways in which God reveals himself. Genres of literature, if you can think of that. It's the same difference between you might have a textbook at school and the book sitting on your nightstand, the, the novel, the story. Both are different kinds and you read them differently for different uh, goals. And here, God reveals himself in a number of ways, but predominantly in our chapter through the life of Jacob. This is the word of the Lord to man, and it is how God communicates to to us. So what I'm going to do this morning is begin, I'm going to read through the entire chapter, chapter 35. And if I am able, I'm going to wrestle with uh, all of it, although the emphasis of Moses seems to fall on the first half of the chapter, and so we'll end up spending most of our time there. But we'll take a look at, it, at the entire chapter briefly and put it all in its context. Well, before we do that, before we go to the Lord and read his word, would you join me in prayer asking for his blessing on our time together? Our Father in heaven, this is your word. It is not ours. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would cause the meditation of our minds together to rightly understand your word, that you would illuminate our hearts, cause us to be receptive. I pray, O Father, that you would help me as I speak this morning, that I would speak what your word has for us, and that I would speak clearly and boldly, as your word instructs. 
Oh God, do this according to the riches of your grace in Christ by whom we come to you. In his name we pray, amen. All right, follow along with me as we begin with verse one of Genesis chapter 35. Then, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because the God, because there appeared, because there God appeared to him when he had fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he, had, when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. And kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. And to your descendants after you, I give this land. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had talked with him. A pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there, there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land... That Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, at Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. 
Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. What we have in this chapter is... Uh, just let me give you the, the backbone, the structure of what's happening here. Because there has, when you read it initially, and perhaps you were thinking, uh, you were probably thinking the same thing I was thinking when I was first reading through this chapter and trying to figure out what is Moses, what is the Lord saying here. Because it feels like it's just a bunch of stories that are thrown together as if there's almost no structure to it, as if it's, it's kind of each is just thrown there as a hodgepodge and, and loosely tied together. But there is an overriding structure. It is one unit. And we see that there are, there are four journeys that you'll find in this chapter. In the opening verse, you have the Lord who commands Jacob to arise and go to Bethel. And then in verse 5, you have the record of his journey that takes him to Bethel. And then in verse 16, you have Jacob's journey from Bethel to this town or to this place of Ephrath. And then from Ephrath, Jacob journeys on in verse 21. And then in verse 27, Jacob arises and goes and comes to his father who lives at Hebron. So there is four journeys that are happening here and it serves as a reminder that even though Jacob is now in the land of promise, he's in the land of Canaan, he's in the land that God has promised to Abraham and Isaac and, and also to him, it is a reminder that he is still homeless, still a pilgrim, still waiting for the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And, and so we are also, who have put our faith in Christ, we are pilgrims as well. Politically homeless in many ways. This world is not our home. We are just a passing through, that old hymn tells us. And it speaks true. And where this chapter ends reminds us that God will fulfill his promises. He had told Jacob when he was leaving that he would bring him safely back to the land. And here we find at the end of chapter 35, he is finally at Hebron. This is the place you might remember where Abraham had originally first bought a plot of land so that he could bury his wife Sarah. And this is where Isaac is living, his father. And now Jacob has returned to the place where his family owns property. The the down payment, you might say, on all of what God has promised. But it's not just four journeys that we find here. It is also four burials. Four, Four burials. And each signifying that something has come to an end. In verse 4, You have Jacob burying the gods, the foreign gods. He hides them under the terebinth tree. And in the ancient world, without um, markers that you and I might have, some of you, you, um, when we moved into this area, I learned my way around by learning the street names. My wife, who grew up in this area, she knew her way around by the landmarks. And she would tell me, there is this barn and this stone, turn left when you get there. 
And I'm like, what? There's a lot of barns. There's a, what, what are you talking about? You know, it, when you get to there, there is going to be a sign. It's going to look like this. And there's a tree. You can find it. Just turn right there. You're going to go down a quarter of a mile. We well, don't have those things. Landmarks in the ancient world, significantly large trees and terebinth trees. You can later Google them. They're large. They're, they lasted a long time. They were, they were important. And so that forms landmarks. And so here he buries these gods under the terebinth tree. And it's almost as a picture as if he is at this time doing away with old Jacob. Marking them out as as dead and he dead to them. More than this, you see in verse 8, Jacob buries Deborah. Bringing an end to his Exile from the land. You know, Deborah is not mentioned up till now. This is the first mention of Deborah. It's the last mention of Deborah. Deborah is his mother, Rebecca's handmaid. She was Jacob's nurse. And we are given no details about his mother's death. We will learn later at the end of Genesis that she has been buried in the same field where her husband is. But it's almost as if the Lord here is is signaling something. That he is immensely displeased with her. Why would the Lord be displeased with her? Well, the last time she shows up in Scripture, she is assisting her son to deceive her blind husband. And it's almost as if God is trying to signal how displeased he was with that action. And from that point on, she never shows up again. But Jacob buries Deborah in verse 8. And then in verses 19 to 20, he buries Rachel as she is giving birth to Benjamin. And this burial marks the end of the birth of the 12 sons and the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel that, that get listed And then in verses 28 to 29, Jacob buries his father Isaac. And that is a signal that something else is coming to, not just to an end, but to a beginning. That now the shift is going to go from, the focus is going to go from Jacob and it is now going to be on Jacob's children. There is something else that is happening in in this chapter. There's journeying, there is, there is death for burials. But this, more than this, we find that life in this fallen world is going to be marked by, by sin, by sadness, by suffering, by tension. You see that, you see this in, in, in Reuben, who goes into his father's concubine, Bilhah. And in doing this, what Reuben is trying to do is he is trying to establish himself as the new family leader. He is making a play for power. That is what is happening here. And you can almost sense that perhaps Jacob doesn't feel as if he himself has enough power to to contradict Reuben because he remains silent. But more than this, when you see the, the names in verses 22 to the end of 22 
all the way to 26, the names of the tribes listed, the names of Jacob's sons listed, you'll notice that they're not listed in their birth order, which would be expected. They are listed according to their wives, according to their mothers, according to the wives of Jacob. And you would expect that it would start with Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. But he starts instead with Leah. And it's almost as if what is being signaled, as if God is saying Leah is his true wife. But more than this, in in dividing them up by their wives, by their mothers, it gives us a, a hint at the tension that is existing in the family. So more than just grief at burying loved ones, Jacob is showing us by his life that life in this world is marked not only by, by, by grief, but by sin, by suffering, by, by tension to the very end. But the way to this chapter is found in the first 15 verses. And in verse 1, what we find is a gracious invitation of God. A gracious invitation of God. We, and it's more than just a, an invitation. This is a command. God gives actually four commands here. Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. And we don't tend to, tend to think of commands as gracious. But we cannot mistake. These commands are very gracious. Why? Well, you'll remember... In chapter 34, what has happened? We saw last week. There it starts off terribly. Jacob has settled near Shechem. He shouldn't be there. He should have gone on to Bethel, which is only about 20 miles away. But he stops near Shechem. He seems to, to settle down there. He wants to build there. And his daughter, 12-year-old daughter, 12, 13, maybe younger, we're not sure, but she's young, goes out into the land and she is assaulted. Assaulted and kidnapped. And more than that, we, we find that the response of Jacob's sons is to go and, and not just get her back through whatever violent means necessary. They go and they kill Everyone, slaughtering everyone in that city. All the men and all the women and children and all the goods, anything that they want, they take with them. So when we read in chapter 35 that Jacob is bringing his family and all who are with him, we need to understand that's a lot more people than Jacob's family itself. And Jacob is abundantly aware of how far short he is and his family are, how unworthy they are to approach God. What we have here is this reminder that God reaches out to his sin-humiliated people first. Jacob doesn't go to God. He doesn't try to fix things and get things right and then say, okay, now that we've done things, now I'm going to come to God. He responds only to the call of God. And this is the first step of genuine worship. It is 
the call of God, the invitation of God. Have you ever wondered why we so often, not so often, why we always begin our services with a scriptural call to worship? It's because we see examples of it like this. Without God's invitation, yea, without God's command, we have no right to come to him. Examples like this abound in Scripture. Psalm 95, 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Or Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. From from Genesis to Revelation, we find that the only way any of us ever approach God is because he has approached us. He calls us, invites us to come. Come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, friends, we gather this morning at the invitation of God. We cannot walk into his presence presumptively. That would be arrogance, to think that we can just strut in and he would, be, he would accept us because, hey, he's God. He'll forgive us. That's his job. No, it, God must be the one to extend the invitation. You see, remember Moses on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai. He is invited up, but no one else with him. In fact, for the rest of Israelites, for them to even touch the mountain meant death to them. And this call to worship, which is given week in and week out, it is always gracious. Always gracious. And perhaps you rolled out of bed this morning and quickly did your hair, thoughtlessly got ready, just wanted to get here. You had lots of things going through your mind, through your heart. Worried about the roads. If you have kids, maybe you're like, stop being so loud back there. Stop fighting! Pull into church. Everyone puts on the smiles, walking in. Ten seconds ago, we were at each other's throats. And we received the call of God. Come and worship. We still need that call, even if we have deemed our our past week to be a to be significantly good in our eyes. We have never obeyed enough to come to the Lord on our own. But just as God graciously called unworthy Jacob and his family, he calls us. And because he calls us, we can come because he has made a way. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter describes how we can come into the presence of God. 
For Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous in the place or for the unrighteous. Why? Why did Christ suffer? Why does he die for our sins? Peter tells us that he might bring us to God. I love that word bring. I was thinking about that this week. Not so merely, he he could have written so that we can go to God, which would almost picture Christ as the doorway who opens it up, go on in, but that's not the picture. The picture is that he might bring us to God. That tells us that he escorts us into the presence of God. We don't go into the presence of God alone. We go with our Savior with us, before us, mediating before us. And so God gives this invitation, arise and go up to Bethel, dwell there and make an altar there to God. And one of the things I love is you can find these commands similar to them and sometimes repeated, not only in the lives of Abraham and Isaac who have gone before Jacob, but you can find these same commands in Israel later on at the Exodus. Arise, go up out of the land. Serve the Lord. Worship them there. It's almost what we have here. Not almost. It is what we have is a pattern is being set. So he receives this call from the Lord. A gracious call from the Lord. But do you notice Jacob's response? It is not casual in any way. It is humble. It is repentant. It is exactly what we saw earlier in James 4. Mourn, humble yourselves. Jacob's response is is not passive, it is active. He becomes the preacher to his family, the exhorter. Put away all the foreign gods that are among you. This would have included the the gods uh, that, the, the, the household gods that his wife would have stolen from her uncle. These would have included the gods from the Shechemites that were stolen from Shechem and taken. And if you're tracking through the story of of Jacob so far, you have gods that have been stolen, that have been sat upon, that have been buried. These are not gods worth serving. And yet these are the gods that the people of God continually fall back into serving continually fall back into worshiping. And Jacob calls them to to put them away, to purify themselves, to change their garments, an act of, of ritual purification. And I think this text hits home, especially to us men. Those of you who are married, who are fathers... Here Jacob takes an active role in this. He is the one who goes to his family, purify yourselves, put the foreign gods away from you, change your garments. Men, I know we we work long hours, we have a lot on our plate. I know Sunday mornings you are often tired. There's a lot that you could probably be doing this morning. You probably have a checklist of things at home you want to get done. There are a million distractions and reasons to keep us from the Lord. 
But Jacob shows us a pattern here that we must be the ones to call our families to worship, to encourage them. Let us go. It is not a, an, a role that we can delegate to our wives, to another. We can be certain that our wives would gladly see us take it up. And Jacob commands his family to put away the gods, to purify themselves, just as we are to do as well. To put away anything that will distract us, to to, to put away anything that will replace our trust in God, to put away anything that that threatens our, our satisfaction in Him. Anything that tamps down our zeal for the Lord. We are to put it away. Paul will describe this act in Romans chapter 8, verse 13 as as mortifying sin. That is to kill it. The picture there is, is slow, steady starvation. To mortify sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of this shows Jacob's spiritual maturity. You know, earlier in his life, do you remember when he's leaving the land, he is encountering God at Bethel. Do you remember how casually he treats that? Certainly he is amazed. God is in this place. He, he takes the, 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 the stone that was his, his pillow and he pours some oil on it. It's, it's an altar now. This marks out the place. Wow, this is significant. And he goes on his way. Here is Jacob humbled. Here is Jacob humbled. He is a man who has been gripped by his need for the grace of God. And yet, what we find is that as he comes, he comes with, he he can come with confidence. Why? Because God protected him. God was for him. God, in verse 1, commands Jacob and all of his family to come to Bethel. And I want you to understand how dangerous this journey would be for him. You remember at the end of chapter 34, Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, they have just come back from killing everyone. Jacob is angry with them, not for the right reasons, for the slaughter that they have done, but his response to them in in verse 30 is you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Jacob is only worried about himself. He's selfishly concerned here. But that is a legitimate concern, isn't it? He knows that all all that it will take is For the cities in that area to to see what has been done, join forces and attack. The safest and most rational thing for Jacob to do at this moment would be to fortify himself there at Shechem. The worst thing that he could do would gather up his family and go on a journey. You can imagine trying to get hundreds, 
thousands of people together, however many people are here, we do not know. It is a significant number. All of the sheep, all of the oxen to bring it all with you. Everyone strung out in a long line, incredibly vulnerable. It is unconscionable what God is calling him to do. You thought it might be unsafe for you to come today to church because of the snow falling. This was an unsafe act. But God calls him. And in verse 5, we see God's protection. Though Jacob was afraid, he had no need. Why? Because we read, and they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were around all of them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. It wasn't Jacob who needed to be terrified. It was everyone else. God struck the heart of all the surrounding peoples with terror. They were terrified of Jacob. They were terrified. If only two of Jacob's sons could take the city of Shechem, what hope do we have? We can't possibly go against all, well, there's only 11 at this time. But the rest of them, brother and sister in Christ, there are many reasons, humanly speaking, why gathering for worship is hard. More than that, there are many reasons we can look out in the world and have fear. There is uncertainty behind every, around every corner. There are reasons to be afraid under every rock, behind, lurking behind every news report. We do not know what the markets will bring tomorrow. We do not know what new tragedy will befall us this week. What new tensions will arise in our country or in our homes or at work. But what we find, brothers and sisters, friends, is that we have a God who is more than capable of meeting every need. What God calls us to do, he provides. As one writer put it long ago, God gives what he commands. He called Jacob to come. And Jacob could have pled, it is not safe. But Jacob, like his father before him and his grandfather before him, trusted God and God protected him. And I want you to see how Jacob worships in the following verses. He worships in response to God's pardon and God's promises. Back in Bethel, God speaks to Jacob and Jacob's response in verses 14 to 15 is to set up an altar to worship the Lord. But what is it that he is worshiping? Well, rather, what is it about God that he is worshiping? The first thing that we see is he is worshiping in light of God's incredible pardon. You see this in verse 10. The Lord reminds Jacob of his new name, Israel. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. Don't you see how incredibly important it is? 
And can you not imagine how in the previous weeks and months, Jacob has felt that, sure, God, he named me Israel before, but oh, I have failed that name. I am not one who has trusted and striven with God and succeeded. Oh no, I have failed. I am not worthy to be called Israel any longer. And God, by renaming here, he, he is reaffirming him as Israel. No longer is he Jacob the trickster, the deceiver, the manipulator. He is Israel. His whole identity has been changed because of the pardon that God gives. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is why we, when we worship, we move from a call to worship to adoration of God then to confession and assurance of pardon. We worship in light of what Christ has done. Nothing in our hands, nothing on our own. We come only and wholly to the Lord. Not only do we see this, we see in that he worships because of the unstoppable promises of God. Notice with me verses 11 to 12. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. These covenant promises that God gave to Abraham, God is now reaffirming for Jacob and his descendants. And I want you to notice something. When the Lord is reaffirming these promises to Jacob, he doesn't base it on Jacob's goodness or on the goodness of Jacob's family. He bases it on himself. He says, I am God Almighty. This, that is the name of God, El Shaddai. It, it, it pictures for us, it tells us of his sovereignty, that over all things, he is the God who has the right, the only right to initiate a covenant relationship with his people. We come to the Lord and we love him because he has first loved us. And he has initiated a loving relationship with us. The very foundation of Jacob's privilege and the very foundation of our privileged relationship with God does not lie with us. It is only in God and in God alone. And because it is in God and because he is sovereignly ordaining and bringing it about, we have every reason to be confident that his promises will come true in all of eternity. That not one good promise of God will fail you. Because if it's up to you and I to keep our grip on the promises of God for us to experience them. We will all fail. We will all fail every day. But God assures Jacob and he assures us that these promises are ours, not on the basis of our well-doing not on the basis of whose son or daughter we are, not on the basis of what we might do in our lives. It is on the basis of his sovereign grace. 
I am God Almighty. But more than this, he goes on and he he expands on these promises. And I I just want to note two ways in which he expands on them. We could look at so many, so many ways in which the Lord builds into this. It's beautiful. But he first says, there, be fruitful and multiply. Do you notice that? Be fruitful and multiply. What, 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 where do you remember hearing those words before? Genesis 1, God creates and he commands the creatures and he commands Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And then in Genesis chapter 9, after sin has entered into the world and God is... Because of that, he has judged all things, destroyed all things, bringing safely through only Noah and his family and those animals with him. God tells Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply. It's Genesis 9 being almost a, a new creation event. And now here, in Genesis 35, we find these same words. Be fruitful and multiply. What we seem to have the Lord saying is that this, like Adam and Eve, who were once created, and Noah, who was a, a picture of recreation, what we have here is a, is a new people. A new creation. And where Israel fails because Israel will fail, Christ succeeds, and through Christ... God makes a a new people, not 12 tribes, but 12 disciples. And through them, a new people by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says there, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And there is coming a day when those who have been born again by faith will experience all of the promises that God has given us. But it's more than that. I want you to notice this line in verse 11, where we read, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. A nation and a company of nations. You know, that promise was given originally to Abraham. And to Abraham, it makes sense. Because you can, through him, he's not only the people of Israel, but you also had the, the, the people from Ishmael and the nations that, that came through him. But then you also had the numerous nations that came through Keturah's sons. But Jacob, only Israel. That's the, the nation, a nation will come from you. But he doesn't say it's just a nation. It's a nation and a company of nations. What is this company stuff? Who is this company? Uh, What's going on? And by company, he's not meaning like Nike and Adidas and McDonald's and whatever other business you're talking about. This is a group, a tribe, a, a number. Here too, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is declaring that the people of God will not be constrained and constricted forever only to the people of Israel. But they will one day expand to the ends of the earth and be marked not by blood, 
but by faith. This is what Jesus describes in Matthew 8. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what Paul will pick up on again and again, but we see it in Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this, brothers and sisters, becomes the strong picture that carries forward the hope that Moses is pointing to doesn't end with Jacob it is not restricted only to Israel but it is all of God's people by faith in Christ Jesus and if you have trusted in Christ you are a part of that company of nations And in Christ, you will receive every blessing, every promise. Not will. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that every spiritual blessing is now yours in Christ in the heavenly places. But it now belongs to you. And we will one day fully experience it. Friend, This is the call for us to worship the Lord. Because of who he is, God Almighty, because of what he has done in Christ. And we worship based on his promises, that we worship coming to him through only his command, his invitation. That we come to him only through his grace. And it's on this basis that we are able to sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. For it is through God and from God that all blessings that we can hope to have in Christ Jesus flow. And in Christ Jesus, they are guaranteed for us. Look, look to him this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us such good and glorious promises. And we are assured that because of your work in Christ Jesus that not one of them will fail. So that even when we fall you hold on to us. We may lose everything in this world but we cannot lose our identity in Christ Jesus. For we belong to you. 
And we are secured by your almighty hand. And out of that hand, nothing and no one can snatch us. Oh God, I pray that you would cause our hearts this morning to look with joy. And to worship with confidence. For you have done great things in Christ. And through him have secured us to be and to share in this company of nations in the promises which you have made. Oh God, we praise you. Our God, we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.